But today we're in 1 Thessalonians 5 and we're going to continue on because even though it's not focusing now on the rapture, it's focusing on the second coming. So we're still kind of in this issue of prophecy and really looking ahead to this idea of the new heavens and the new earth. And so it breaks down into three sections. We'll look at the first three verses, then verses 4 through 7, and then 8 through 11. So if you have a Bible, turn with me, if you might, to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we begin with verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And so here we have the first section here really talking about the fact that no one knows the time of the second coming. Uh, we, of course, will read more about that in just a minute. But first of all, the chapter four sort of focuses on this idea of the rapture. Again, I might hasten to add the word rapture is not in the Bible, but the Latin term from what we get that of being caught up and the idea that we'll meet him in the sky. So this is where Christ comes for his church. When Christ comes again, he comes with his church, and that then describes that next event, the second coming, which we teach here at uh, Prestonwood, and we teach at Dallas Seminary. Prestonwood uh, teaches that, South Southwestern Baptist Seminary, quite a number teach of the idea that that second coming happens after the tribulation. And this second coming is then what is also referred to as the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. And if you are taking some notes, and I know some of you like to take notes, you might correlate that with Matthew chapter 25. Now, Matthew chapter 24 talks about the second coming, but then Jesus also in Matthew 25 talks about separating the sheep from the goats the believers from the non-believers. And so this is, in some respects, a very sobering passage because it reminds us that there will be a time of judgment. Or also he used the other idea of separating the wheat from the chaff. So these are some verses that you, if you want to study them this week in your quiet time, actually hearken back to some of the things that Paul apparently has already taught in Thessalonica, and now is reminding them of what they had already taught them, which I think is an interesting point. You know, for those of you that have been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked about the fact that Paul was only there for three Sabbaths, only three weeks, and yet Paul thought it was really important to teach about the second coming in one of those three weeks. You can think of all the things Paul would want to teach a new believer, right? And one of the things he thought was really important was to teach about end times. Now, many of you know Gary Frazier, and Gary Frazier and I have talked about this more, and I've talked about this also with some other prophecy people as well, that all are lamenting the fact that there used to be a time for us baby boomers when we used to have prophecy conferences, and there used to be a lot of interest in prophecy, and now uh, there are still outposts where that is taking place, but it's almost like a lot of pastors say, you know, we don't need to teach that stuff. Well, take that up with the Apostle Paul. In three weeks, three sessions he had essentially with these individuals, he taught about second coming. So I think at least it illustrates how important he thought it was. Now, again, there's some other verses that I might give you. Uh, one of those is looking back to how this statement by Paul correlates with Matthew 24. 
Sometimes for those of us that teach in seminary, we call it the Olivet Discourse, which is a funny way of just simply saying the last teaching of Jesus on the Mount of Olives before he was taken to be crucified. And he talked about the fact that Christ will gather his elect from the four winds. On that day, those who have already been raptured with him will come with him on the clouds. So um, if you are looking forward to the rapture, you're going to be up there when this happens. But then there will be other believers on the earth because we learn during the tribulation, if you look through the book of Revelation, uh, that there are quite a number of believers after the rapture has taken place. And those will be here as well. And those believers will see him coming on the clouds along with the believers who have been raptured. I mean, you couldn't even come up with a Hollywood scenario that's any more dynamic than that one, but that's exactly what's being explained. Now, again, back to the point I make just a minute ago. Notice how he's already said we have no need to anything written to you because the implication is he had already told them about the second coming, already told them about some of the signs of the end times. So he's not necessarily teaching here because this is a relatively short series of verses. He's just reminding them of what he's already taught. And he's clarified the idea here, which we saw last week in the chapter four, uh, of which he was spending some time talking about what happened to those who have died. But now he's saying they didn't need an explanation about the times and the seasons and goes into it in a little bit more detail. The first that I love is that he refers to this as that will come like a thief in the night. You think about a thief that comes, you might want to have some kind of security system because, you know, you never know when the thief is going to come. And so that's one illustration that he uses. He does, though, say, even though you don't know, there are some signs. And one of those is a pregnant woman's labor pains. Now, you women can help us out here. But as I understand it from labor pains, they increase in both frequency and intensity. And a lot of prophecy teachers have said, look, we've always had earthquakes. We've always had wars and rumors of wars. We've always had, you know, all sorts of things that are described in Matthew 24 and others. True. But if they're increasing in frequency and intensity, maybe that tells you that we're a lot closer. Janet Parshall's on this week uh, on my program and said, if nothing else, I can say I'm one day closer to the rapture, one day closer to the second coming. But I think a lot of people are saying we're a whole lot closer. And a couple of you said, you know, I'm getting to the point where I'm not even sure I want to buy green bananas. So, I mean, OK, we recognize that we recognize that some of these things seem to be increasing in frequency and intensity. And I want to correlate that with Jonathan, who oftentimes is on our program point of view on the Millennial Roundtable. If that doesn't cause you to be more bold, there is a sense in which there is a sense of expectation. And I know some of you this week went to hear David Jeremiah over there in Fort Worth. And boy, you talk about somebody that's convinced that these are the latter days and these are the end times. That is certainly the case. Anyway, back to our message here. We see that here he established the church. He trained them in basic doctrine. And when we get into Second Thessalonians, I'll come back to that. Because, again, it's a reminder that we have a, bit of, a little bit of an idea that if you wanted to have kind of a, we'll call it an evangelical catechism, 
I mean, some of you Catholics know what a catechism is, right? But this, if there was kind of a biblical catechism, there are certain things that's very obvious that Paul taught when he established churches. And we'll learn more about that when we get into Second Thessalonians. But nevertheless, as they have these new believers, then they teach them theology, including, no doubt, some of the sayings of Jesus, because recognize some of this, this letter was written before we even had what we today call the Gospels. So they're recounting from the things that they have learned. And certainly it shows that one of the things that Paul thought was so important to teach a new believer was what? The second coming. So in terms of discipleship, think about that as well. They also point out the fact that this would be a surprise for everyone, including the fact that in Matthew 24, Jesus says, no one but the Father knows the day and the hour. Jesus himself did not know that. But it does give us some indications, because as in the days of Noah, people went about their regular lives. Noah's up there building the ark, gopher wood, all the kinds of things that some of us, if we've been uh, to ICR, if you've been to the ark um, encounter there in Kentucky with Answers in Genesis, we say, this is a big thing, and it's a really a long period of time of building the ark, and everybody's going, you know, silly Noah, Days are just going to be basic. You know, people are eating and drinking and getting married. They're unaware of the fact that the flood of judgment is coming. And just as well, I think even those living during maybe even what's called the tribulation might just be saying, you know, everything's fine. Matter of fact, there's peace and there's security and it's just fine. We got rid of all those, you know, troublesome believers, those Christians. You know, they just disappeared. We don't know where they went. And all of a sudden... Destruction and judgment comes. What a sobering statement indeed. And so again, you know, think about the phrases that are used. Destruction, birth pangs, a thief breaking into your house. None of those are real positive. I mean, for the women, okay, birth pangs are positive and eventually you're going to have a child. But I mean, apart from that, I mean, these are negative statements that here Paul is using to remind us of this judgment. They don't sound good. And even though I think it illustrates, and I use the birth pangs one as a good example, because on the one hand, for us, the return of Christ is an encouragement. Because if you are confident in who you are, and if indeed, as it says in 1 John, that you will know that you have eternal life, if you know that you have Christ, the return of Christ is not fearful. It's really encouraging. And so it'll be a time of great joy for us. But again, destruction, thief breaking in the night, it's going to be a time of great terror for those who do not know Jesus. And if I can't give you an encouragement to be bold for Christ, um, certainly Jonathan's done a good job. Here's another illustration of that only so well. Again, let's make the contrast. In the first coming, Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save it. Of course, he did judge the Sadducees and Pharisees. We see some of that. In his second coming, though, he is coming for judgment. And I give you again that key verse in Matthew 25. And like any judgment, it's going to be a good day for those that receive justice. And it's not going to be a very good day for those who receive a guilty verdict. If you've ever been in a trial or you've ever been on a jury, I've been on enough juries to know that, there's some people coming out, thumbs up, 
Some people walking out, thumbs down. Some people that have a smile on their face and some that find themselves in that judgment that actually came against them. And so for believers, it's going to be a day of unspeakable joy. For those who do not know the Lord, it's a judgment from which they will not escape. So powerful statements just even in the first three verses. But let's continue on now. Start in verse four. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. You are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. And here we have another statement about the fact that we should not be surprised. We may not know the day or the hour, but we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus is coming. Uh, The second coming will surprise Christians because no one except the Father knows the day and the hour. But at the same time, it will not surprise us like a thief in the night because we don't live in the darkness, we live in the light. For us, it'll be a good surprise. For those of us, the day of judgment will be a good day, not a bad one, because we're children of the light, not children of the darkness. And it's interesting that this phrase is used time and time again in the scriptures. The children of light and the sons of light. Um, And we see that in the Gospel of Luke. We see that in the Gospel of John. We see that as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And then John, even as he writes his first letter, in addition to the epistle, uses that idea. And, of course, this idea of light versus darkness is something we see Jesus talking about. John talks about, even to this day, the secular people talk about light and darkness. You know, we talk about uh, even in the Star Wars, you know, turned over to the dark side, right? So, I mean, we recognize that that is the case. But again, in First John here, how's John use it? God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, which means God is 100% good. That's an important point, because even this week, in uh, some of the conversation I had with one of the apologists we had on there, he said, we're starting to notice a difference. The younger generation aren't so much always asking whether God uh, is, exists or even whether the Bible is true. They're really asking whether or not Christianity or God is good. Uh, because they see evil in the world. And I think it's interesting, a little bit later, I'm going to talk about the C.S. Lewis film that is out this coming week. And it spends a fair amount of time with Max McLean playing C.S. Lewis, talking about all the atheist arguments against the existence of God. And a lot of those are the fact that there is just no way there could be a good God with all the evil and destruction and horror in the world. And so I think it is striking to see that that has become kind of the bigger apologetic issue. Not so much truth, but goodness. And here, I think we have a very good answer in 1 John 1, 5. But let's continue on, because then he also talks about staying awake and staying sober. And this is a metaphor for, of course, waiting for Christ. Staying awake um, is obviously the fact that it's not actually talking about getting drunk, although the Bible does condemn drunkenness. I give you some verses there. And we know it's more of a metaphor because you can't stay awake indefinitely. But it's the idea of being awake, alert, sober. Basically, we should be looking to the return of Christ. And that is kind of the idea that is being explained. Well, as we're waiting for Christ to return, then we get this interesting statement about the best way to be alert and the best way to be ready is to put on the armor of God, starting in verse 
8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for the helmet of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so here, there's a perfect correlation, again, for those of you taking notes, between what we see in 1 Thessalonians 5 and what we now find in Ephesians chapter 6. He uses the same kind of language. First of all, in Ephesians 5, he's talking about walking as the children of light. Then when we get to Ephesians 6, he talks about standing firm to persevere. And of course, we have this whole statement about the spiritual armor. So again, it is very easy for anybody that believes that Ephesians was written by Paul to also agree that he wrote 1 Thessalonians. It's amazing, you can go to some of these liberal seminaries where they say, well, we're not sure Paul wrote Ephesians, or we're not sure he wrote Thessalonians. I mean, it's almost exactly a word-for-word copy one from the other. But again, it gets us into some of these arguments. The breastplate of love uh, protects our bodies. The helmet of salvation, of course, protects our minds. And notice, these are not necessarily offensive weapons. These are defensive weapons. These are a sense we're not necessarily fighting, but we're being ready And we're protecting ourselves so we don't get subverted. We don't get uh, in some way taken captive, to use Colossians 2 way. We don't end up being compromised or conformed, as it says in Romans 12. But instead, we're actually children of the light. And we are not marching towards wrath like the children of darkness. And so he takes us through this. And then he uses kind of a play of words. Up until now, he's talking about don't fall asleep. But now he's referring to those who, in the previous chapter, have what? Fallen asleep. As I showed last night, last time I should say, we didn't spend any time going into this. But there are some that believe in soul sleep. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about those people that have died. And so again, while he's talking about staying awake and staying alert, he's also using that to look look back to those people who actually have died, which was one of the big reasons why he wrote this letter, because those Christians in Thessalonica were saying, okay, we know Christ is going to return, but what about these people that have been part of this church that have died? Is there a place for them too? And the answer is, of course they are. And so again, the idea is whether you are awake or asleep, we are to what? Live for Christ. And I think it's a powerful argument indeed. And this, of course, should be, as he says in verse 11, should be encouraging. You go through a tough time. If nothing else, we can say, be encouraged because Christ is coming again. Right now, there may be injustice and it may not be fair. But there will be a time when justice will indeed reign on this earth and be encouraged. And so we should encourage one another by doing that. As we go through the battles of life, we should encourage one another on the idea that there will be a heavenly prize. We talked about this idea of rewards and that we are to press on. And I gave you Philippians 3:14, And that encouragement and really just the body and community of Christ should be a source of encouragement. We are fighting a spiritual battle individually, but we're also fighting a spiritual battle together as the body of Christ. 
And that's really our goal here in the examine class. We want you to feel like a sense of community. And Suzanne and I have said, you know, we feel like there is a lot of community. And I recognize some of you are visitors saying, well, okay, you know, I would like to be part of that community. We'd like you to join with us as well to be part of that community. Because these are going to be difficult times we may be facing. There seems to be a real hostility to the Christian message in a lot of corners. So all the more reason to encourage one another as we gather together here. So with that as a background, what I thought I would do is try to answer maybe a few of your questions about heaven. Because after all, this is looking to the second coming. And then if you go to the book of Revelation, it talks about the fact that there will be a millennial reign. But then eventually there's a new heaven and a new earth. And last week when we talked about heaven, we had some questions. So let me, if I can, try to answer some of those. And the first set of questions, what's this resurrection body all about? You've been talking about this resurrection body. You know, how tall am I going to be? What am I going to look like? All that. And I thought, first of all, before I even try to get into give you an answer, for those of you that are obsessive, uh, you can write down these verses. Or if you say, I don't have time to write them down, well, they'll be on... You know, again, uh, PressingWhatExamine.org, or I know some of you just pull out your camera and go, yep, I can see that going right now, taking the click, you know, taking the pictures. But um, there are a couple of places where we see the comments about the resurrection bodies. Uh, in the book of Job, I think that one's sort of a tangential reference. Daniel certainly gets into that. First Corinthians, a little bit. Uh, Philippians, just that one verse we looked at last week a little bit in First Thessalonians. And then we also have the statement about it in Revelation chapter 20. Now, great, but can we get some really smart people to talk about this? Well, I just a minute ago uh, showed you this book by Randy Alcorn. I meant to bring it with me, but I had so many books I brought here to fill up the books we give away. I forgot to bring this one. It's a very thick book. It is kind of a classic on heaven. But in addition to the book by Randy Alcorn, I might also mention in just a minute, we're going to get to another book by N.T. Wright, who I've interviewed as well on the subject. But first of all, let's talk about the difference between this earthly body, this earth suit we're in right now, and the heavenly body. That is, Paul talks about the fact that our earthly body, especially gets into that in First uh, Corinthians, was sown perishable. But the resurrection body is raised imperishable, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And so that's kind of a summary of 1 Corinthians 15, which also I think is repeated in Revelation chapter 20. But there are some pretty smart people over the years that have done a little more thinking about this whole idea of the resurrected body. And one of those is N.T. Wright, uh, who is a British scholar, an individual that I've had on the program a couple of times, always by phone, um, although he has been in the Dallas area once with us. And he says that, again, we can get a little bit of an idea of what our resurrected bodies will look like when we look at the resurrected body of Jesus, because that gives us sort of a prototype, if you will, of a resurrection body. Okay, well, we'll see this. In the Bible, it says in 1 John 3, I just quoted 1 John 1, but 1 John 3, it tells us that when Jesus appears, we shall be like him. So the argument for that is actually in the writing of the Apostle John, for we shall see him as he is. And the implication, I think, 
in the Greek is that our bodies will be like the body of Jesus. Okay, well, what do we see about the body of Jesus? It was similar, but was different. When Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, does she recognize him? No. But then he says something, and she recognizes him. When Jesus walks with the two disciples, probably Cleopas is our guest, as they are walking on the road to Emmaus, do they recognize him? But then when he, and it's something, the way he breaks the bread or what he says or a phrase, and all of a sudden their eyes open. So again, the implication is, is there will be enough of us that people will recognize us, but there's enough different that they won't. And for some of us, we say, well, that means I will be slim and I'll be tall and I'll be good looking and all the rest. By the way, I'm going to get to that in just a minute. And so certainly the case. Now, do we eat? Because that gets us into this. Well, Jesus did what? He ate food in his resurrection body. We see this in the book of Luke, uh, first statement earlier. And then, of course, at the very end, eating fish. We will eat and drink in heaven. I'll get to that in more detail. And Revelation 7 tells us there's no hunger or thirst in heaven. So those are just a few aspects of the resurrection body. Let's continue on. Does that body have a physical presence? Is it a corporeal body? Yes, because he told the disciples to what? Touch him and to see who he is. Now, Jesus also called people in heaven by name. Because you say, well, I'm going to have my name. Yes, because Jesus talks about Abraham and Lazarus, you know, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So that seems to be the case. Now, will we be unique? This is important because some of the Eastern religions say that eventually when you reach to nirvana, you just cease to exist. It's like a blowing out of a candle. <sighs> no, you will be unique. Uh, heaven, by the way, rejoices over each and every person. Today we had some people come forward. If one of those people actually accepted Jesus Christ, there's rejoicing in heaven just as they walk down that aisle. So, again, our bodies, our resurrection bodies will be similar but different. You know, sometimes when you're ill, you sometimes say, I'm a shadow of my former self. You know, lately I've lost about 20 pounds, so people say I'm a shadow of my former self, maybe in that regard. Maybe you can say that as well. We're a mere shadow right now of our future self. And so that's certainly an encouragement. And that's kind of at least some of the thoughts that people like N.T. Wright and um, other individuals, Randy Alcorn, and many people have written about this. Of course, last week we mentioned Lee Strobel talking about the resurrection body. So that was one of the questions. What am I resurrection body like? Well, I think we got a couple of ideas there. Do we have a clear understanding of all it? Not exactly, but it's certainly something to look forward to, right? So let's get into another one. Is my body going to be beautiful? Your body is going to shine, according to the scriptures. Daniel talks about the fact that we will shine brightly. Now, when that was said in the Old Testament, that might have been thought, well, that just means we'll shine. You know, sometimes when people have a big smile, they shine. Um, but then again, in the book of Matthew, the righteous will shine like a sun. And there are some people that are simply saying that maybe that is something else. There's a very powerful line in the C.S. Lewis film we're going to talk about in just a minute, in which he says, and this is, I think, in The Abolition of Man, it's in God in the Docks for sure, in which if we were to see people now in their glorified state, we would be tempted to what? Worship them. And you think about, again, do we have a glimmer, I'm 
pun intended, of what that might look like. And in the transfiguration, what does it say? Christ's clothes, what? Became as bright as a flash of lightning. Moses and Elijah appear in glorious splendor. So, you didn't think you were going to shine, but the implication is, if you were to see people in their resurrected state, you might, might even be tended to bow down in front of them. And that is a powerful statement, which C.S. Lewis picks up in the film, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Okay, big question here. Suzanne always says, I'm going to eat everything I can eat in heaven here, and I'm not going to get fat. So, uh, is she right on that regard? And I think, well, we have certainly a lot of evidence that indeed we eat in heaven, especially in the new heaven and new earth. We will not eat again until the kingdom of God comes. Okay. It talks about, uh, in Luke... A feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we also, in the book of Revelation, learn about the wedding supper of the Lamb. And we also see that even when Jesus was here on earth, he ate with the disciples. So is there eating? Those of you who love to eat, yeah, the good news is there's eating. Okay, so there is eating in heaven for sure. Now, some people, I know this is hard in a Baptist church, say, well, is there drinking in heaven? And again, uh, first of all, in Revelation 21, it talks about we'll drink from the spring of the water of life. Hard to understand exactly what that is. Now, this, of course, is in the new heavens and not earth, not when we're in our non-corporeal state, but in the intermediate state. It also says in the book of Isaiah that God will prepare for us a banquet of aged wine, the finest wine. And that doesn't seem to be indicating during his first coming. It seems to be indicating his second coming. So, wine drinking. And in Revelation 22, it says we will drink wine and we will eat from the fruit trees. We will actually drink the juice from 12 fruits from the tree. This is probably a tree that we don't have on this earth right now. But again... So, there's eating, there's drinking, there's a new body. Are you getting excited about this? As I said before, if God talked about this too much, there would be a tendency, as I said a few weeks ago, for us to start walking across the street without looking both ways or, you know, uh, jumping out of an airplane without a parachute because we would really want to get there. But uh, again, it gives us a sense of what that might be like. Okay, i got questions. Are there animals in heaven? Okay, what about that? <clears throat> well, first of all, we know that there apparently are horses in heaven because Second King talks about that. In Revelation, it talks about a white horse. Now, it could have been that when John sees that, it looks like a horse, but it's actually just a heavenly being. Okay, possibly. But if you go and look at what is described as what happens in the millennial kingdom, it talks about the lamb will lie down with the lion, the lion and the lamb will lay down. We read in Isaiah 11, a wolf, a lamb, a lion, an ox, a leopard, a goat, a calf. Yes, for those of you who don't like steaks, even a cobra. There, okay. So we're talking about a fair number of kinds of animals being described during the millennial kingdom. And, again, uh, the idea that I expressed last week, but let me get into it in a little more detail, is that it talks about the fact that the animals were formed from the ground and humans were formed from the ground. And it talks about the fact that God breathed a spirit to Adam's body. And this is what is called the soul of the spirit or the fish. Uh, but it also talks about the animals having a soul. Now, does that mean that indeed an animal has a human soul? No. 
Does that mean an animal is created in God's image? No. But Gary Habermas and J.P. Moreland in their book, Beyond Death, made this really interesting statement. It wasn't until the advent of the 7th century Enlightenment that the existence of animal souls was even questioned in Western civilization, the doctrine that animals as well as humans have souls. That pretty much died by the 19th century because, of course, Charles Darwin said that none of us have souls because we're just a product of evolution. But if you go back to that, do animals have a human soul? No. Are animals and humans different? Yes. But it seems to at least suggest that an animal might have a soul. Does that mean your favorite pet's going to be there in heaven? I don't know, but it's kind of an interesting idea of animals in heaven. Which leads me to my last question, which again, don't laugh, but um, is it possible that animals in heaven will talk? <laughs> and this is another one that's kind of interesting. First of all, do we have animals on earth that have ever talked? Remember Balaam and his donkey? Okay, that's Numbers 22. You know, I'm not making this up. I mean, some of you are going to go, are you sure about that? Yes, well, again, uh, for whatever reason, God then gave the donkey the ability to at least have a vocal cord enough to talk to Balaam. Okay, now we also know that the, uh, Satan used a serpent to tempt Eve and Adam. Uh, but after the curse, the implication is, is that what? Animals do not talk except for this one exception. Then you have a number of verses, and I'm just putting up one in the interest of time, where in Revelation 8, it says that the eagle calls out in a loud voice. Don't know what to make of that, but eagles, you know, if they're actually doing anything more than going, ah, you know, I'm thinking that we're talking about maybe something that looks like that. Uh, it also tells us in Revelation that every creature will praise God. And this is why C.S. Lewis said, you know what? I'm going to create a world called Narnia, where the beavers talk, where Aslan talks, and where the animals talk. Kind of intriguing. Don't know what to make of it, but again, some of you might just be saying, huh, at least I'm rattling a few of our categories. And it's just, again, maybe a reason why you might want to go and read some of these really excellent books written over the years about what heaven is like. It might just be an encouragement to you, especially if you've lost a loved one or if you're witnessing to someone who has got a troubled uh, diagnosis and really wondering about the future. But while we talk about Narnia, let me just do my one commercial for the day, and that is the C.S. Lewis film, which has been put together by our friends of the Fellowship of the Arts. Uh, this is primarily Max McLean, who was on with me on Thursday, is now, originally it was scheduled just for one night, Wednesday, November 3rd. But because of the popularity, it's now showing in Plano, and of course I've been looking at the ones in Allen. Uh, my uh, daughter and son-in-law, they were going to maybe go to the one at Firewheel. It's now airing both November 3rd on Wednesday, November 4th on Thursday, and now I've seen that it's also airing on November 7th on Sunday. And if the trend continues, because Suzanne and I were trying to get on that first night, November 3rd, unless we want to go really late at night, most of those theaters are already filled out. So here's an opportunity for you to go to this film. And I might just say, 
We were talking about being bold for Christ. If you can bring maybe an unsaved friend here, I mean, this is perfect for your atheist skeptic because it opens up with Max McLean playing C.S. Lewis, and he's just giving you every reason why you don't believe that there's a God. Every reason why you have to say that there uh, is no way that there could be a good God in all the evil that has existed in the world. And then he begins to help you see through his eventual decision to become a Christian. Now, this is played, interesting enough, by Nicholas Ralph, who is this incredible British actor. He was in All Creatures Great and Small. You might be familiar with that and some of the other things. So uh, the acting is first class. You have, of course, a young boy that plays him very young, but then most of it is where C.S. Lewis, as an older man, is looking at what Nicholas Ralph is uh, playing as the uh, younger man. And eventually he becomes a Christian, but as a reluctant convert. And is not one of joy. It's one of just complete frustration. I have to admit that there is a God. And then it takes you all the way through to eventually his decision uh, to go back to the parish and eventually then accepting not only that, but the fact that not only do we believe in God, but now whores, I believe in the incarnation that God became man and then eventually his salvation. So most of what you see here is actually from the book Surprised by Joy. But they drop in some very famous statements from C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. You know, a man who made such claims as this could not possibly be a good moral teacher. If indeed he was not, he'd be on a, a person on the level of somebody who calls himself a poached egg or Satan himself. Or other quotes about, as we talked about here, that you have never met mere mortals. Because if you were to see people in their glorified state, resurrection bodies, you'd be worship, tempted to worship them. So along the way, you kind of learn a little bit about how some of these ideas were dropped into mere Christianity, maybe dropped into God in the docks or the abolition of man or the problem of pain, or most importantly, how some of these ideas showed up in Narnia in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So, again, if you want to go to this, uh, you can just simply go to, was it, cslewismovie.com and just type up in the top corner there, tickets, put in your zip code, and um, you may have a little trouble getting in on Wednesday, November 3rd now, but November 4th, November 9th, just a great evangelistic opportunity that I thought I would mention. And, uh, again, let me turn it back over to Parker.